a number of weeks ago, actually months ago now, as I was just spending my own devotional time with the Lord, the phrase, the phrase, uh, so to the Spirit, kept coming to my heart, to my mind. I, w- I was reminded of, I actually wasn't reading the passage where it talks about that. It was just a random thought that just kept bubbling up in my heart as I was in uh, spending time with the Lord. So as this happens at times, I, t- I took a piece of paper and I wrote that down. So to, to the Spirit, and I wrote it on a piece of paper. Now, for those of you who've been in my office be- before, you know that my desk is, I know right where everything is at, but if you looked at my desk, you'd say, how do you know where anything is at, right? So I wrote it on a piece of paper. Those papers end up becoming a stack of papers. On my right-hand side, I have another stack on my left-hand side. I know what those are about, right? So I got these papers, and then periodically, uh, maybe once every couple weeks or so, I'll go through those random uh, notes that I have on there and synthesize them down to maybe one sheet of paper. So a few weeks later, after having this written this down on a sheet of paper, sewed to the Spirit, I saw that again. And it, 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 now a few couple weeks or three or four weeks have passed, and I've got some time now to actually uh, think about that. In the moment it came to me, I don't know if this ever happens to you, I, I didn't have a bunch of time. I was spending time with the Lord in and knowing that would come to an end and I'd have to move on to something else. And in this moment, I had a little bit of time. I think Pastor Josh or Scott was uh, preaching the next Sunday, and so I had some time. And so I start. the first thing I did is I knew that that came from a New Testament book, and so I immediately started to, to figure out and find out once afresh where that was coming from. And I found out that it comes from chapter 6 in Galatians, verse 8, uh, there's some context to this, but the, the phrase comes from verse 8 that says, the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Okay, let me say that one more time. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, it is my intent uh, to talk to you about that particular verse and the context of that verse, but not today. Because what ended up happening out of this was I began to realize that this idea of, uh, which is talked about in that passage, sowing and reaping and that kind of thing, is a a gardening uh, way of talking about things. And when I, when I started to look at this a little bit deeper, I began to realize that this theme of gardening is littered throughout Scripture. It's just, uh, well, I'll get to it. So, so anyways, I only mentioned that verse to you now so that you might know my heart and what I want to share with you over these uh, next several weeks. Now, before we dig into the Bible about such things, I would, like to, I would like to tell you some facts about gardening that you may have never known, all right? So, uh, I, I want you to think about this. Uh, the, there is, uh, does anybody know 
the most, Denny, you might know this, maybe you don't. But anyways, uh, for those of you who are in agriculture uh, uh, way of life, um, what the largest, uh, what, the, what, what crop is grown the most by weight in the world? I'm still here. I, I need to hear it. No? Okay, I'll tell you. This is by weight. It's 1.7 million tons of it are grown every year worldwide. What? No? Sugar cane. Sugar. That's because you all have sugar addictions. We got to get this satisfied. So there's people, not so much in our country, but in places around the world, they grow sugarcane. It is the number one largest by weight crop. Corn is number two. I said to you the amount, let me just say it again, sugarcane is 1.7 million tons are grown annually to satisfy our sugar addiction. Behind that, a long ways behind that is 822 tons of corn are grown, and wheat is behind that, which is... So actually, rice, I was surprised about it too, is down the list. Maybe because, I don't know, rice doesn't weigh as much. You get a lot for, I don't know. But anyways, all right, so there was that. Uh, an interesting fact. How about this one? The largest flower garden in the world. Anybody? No, managed flower garden. It's called the Dubai Miracle Garden. Uh, what country is that? Is, there, is, is Dubai a country? Or a town? Whatever. I got a picture for you. A picture. There it is. This, this is, I did this for the ladies, okay? <clears throat> this is for you ladies. This garden, listen, listen. This garden covers 45 square miles. It's a big garden. And it's got over 60 million flowers in it. All right? That's a big garden right there. Flower garden. Uh, this is one of the entrances to it here. Uh, it looks like a beautiful place uh, to visit. All right, biggest flower in the world. Anybody know? No? It's called the corpse flower. And I have a picture for you of one. There it is. Yeah. Isn't that pretty? Yeah, it's kind of nice. It, they can grow up to three feet wide, uh, the flower itself. But you, uh, you probably don't want to grow them because via their name, they smell like rotting flesh. So that's probably why you don't have one in your backyard right now. There's a dead person in our backyard. No, is this a flower? This is a flower. All right. Some interesting gardening things. Did you know, did you know that the first way that God ever revealed himself to mankind was as a gardener? Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden. Remember that? And it says there, 
He planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put man whom he had formed. Placed the man in the garden. God planted the garden, and then after making man, placed man in the garden. In fact, if you go on and read that, uh, it, uh, the scene there is, is that God spent time walking through the garden with man. The first way that God or that man comprehended God was by virtue of this garden he had planted for them and him as the gardener. Now, interestingly enough, the Bible starts out in a garden. And then as you read through the Bible, when you get to the last chapter of God's book in Revelation, you find it ends in a garden. I thought that was interesting. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, it says, And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be any curse. It all started in a garden. Yes, hallelujah. It all started in a garden, and it will all come to its culmination in a garden. Between the beginning of things and the new beginning of things, God uses this metaphor of a garden repeatedly throughout Scripture. For example, in the Old Testament, God used the garden as a metaphor to describe His relationship with Israel. Both in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the Lord likens Israel to His garden. In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11, it tells us that the Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. In Jeremiah 31, verse 12, it says they will come home. This is after their captivity in Babylon. Israel, uh, talking about Israel and them coming home uh, to Jerusalem, he said they will come home and sing songs of joy on the heights of Jerusalem. They will be radiant because of the Lord's good gift, the abundant crops of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the healthy flocks and herds. Their life will be like a well-watered garden, and all their sorrows will be gone. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel as is portrayed or seen as God's garden and God as her gardener. At various times, it talks about them being the planting of the Lord. But this imagery does not end in the Old Testament. In fact, you don't have to go very far into the New Testament where Jesus said in John 15, 1, He said, I am the vine and my Father is the gardener. Jesus takes that metaphor, he takes that imagery and applies it to himself and to his own heavenly Father. A little bit later on in the New Testament, Paul uh, uh, borrows this imagery to talk about the church. This imagery of Gardening. I want to read to you some of the verses I don't have on the screen. The one I want you to see, I do, but some of them I don't have there. And uh, just to set the context of things, uh, Paul is addressing the believers there at Corinth, and he's 
talking to them about some of the things, some of the ways they're behaving that aren't helpful, right? And one of the things he talks about is how some of them have latched on to him as being the, as like being their savior, and some others have f- f- latched on to this guy by the name of Apollos. And, uh, and, and, and so in order for Paul to address that, he says this in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? In other words, who, this guy that you, you've fallen in love with and can do no wrong, or maybe some of you have fallen in love with me and think I can do no wrong. He says, what are we? He says, we're only servants of God. That's all we are. We're just servants of the God. And then he goes on to say, I, Paul, planted the seed. Apollos came along behind me. He watered the seed. Uh, but it is only God who makes things grow. Yeah. So he's trying to get them from uh, you know, thinking that they're the bee's knees to looking at God as the gardener, as the one who causes things to grow uh, that, that get planted, all right? So it says in verse 8 here, it says the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. But it's verse 9, if you could put that up on the screen, that I would like you to see. Now the first, uh, the first instance here that I'm going to read to you is from the NIV. It says, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building." In the King James Version, it renders it this way. For we are laborers together with God, and ye are God's husbandry. Now, we don't use that term very often, right? I I never use it. I, I don't, maybe other than reading the King James Bible, I can't remember ever using the phrase or word husbandry, right? I like the way the uh, CEV translation renders it. He says, uh, they write it there. They say, Apollos and I work together for God, and you are God's garden. Remember, he's talking to the believers at Corinth, and he's saying to them straight out, you are God's garden. So we've gone from We've gone from Adam and Eve being in a garden that God had planted to Israel being used in a metaphoric way of being God's garden to the New Testament referencing the church. Uh, People who've come to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the church being God's garden. Are you all with me so far? Now, I got to tell you straight up as we start on down this road together, I am not a gardener. I'm not. I tried a food plot for deer this past year that failed miserably. Miserably. The stuff I I had it, someone graciously helped me till up the ground. Uh, I planted, I went out there with the, the thing like this and I threw the seed around and did all that stuff, and I, I, you're going to laugh at me, but one of the gentlemen here in the church said, you know, you got to put up some kind of electric fence around that or something to keep the deer from going up in that while it's growing. And uh, I said, well, I don't have the resources to pull that off. And so I thought of this, uh, you're going to laugh, you are going to laugh. I thought, of, I thought of a very cheap way of trying to accomplish that, uh, I drove some stakes in the ground, and I bought a $10 roll of caution tape. 
you know, the yellow stuff about this wide. I bought caution tape. And I, I, uh, I, put, it around, I put it around the post and all, all the way around the food plot, and I put it all around. And, and my thinking was, right, my thinking was, it'll wave in the breeze and it'll scare the deer away, right? So a week or so goes by, and one of my neighbor friends from up the road, he and his wife, walked by our house every day. And uh, I was out in the yard, and they walked by, and they said, hey, uh, we were up back. We were riding our horses up there. And uh, they, sa they said, uh, we noticed that you put some caution tape around, and it looks like you planted some food for the deer. And they said, do you think our deer can read? <laughs> I, I said, no, I, I was thinking more a little wavy motion that would keep them up. All right, so I, I think it suffice to say it failed miserably, right? Every time I went up, they just busted through it. And so as the stuff came up, right? It started to come up, and I'm like, yes, this is working. As fast as it came up, they ate it. And by the time uh, uh, the fall rolled around to the time of the year, I actually wanted something lush out there that they might be coming to and eating. It looked like, it looked like the baseball field that the, I used to play with in Pennsylvania. It was all dirt. It, just, uh, it was just a dirt field, and uh, it was a humbling experience. So... We're going to try to do some things different next time around. So I say all that say, I am not a gardener. My wife is. She loves to garden. She loves to pick rocks and pull weeds and plant stuff and all that stuff. I, I, I still haven't figured out. In fact, my only part in all of that project, well, I had a little bit more to do with it because we put an electric fence around it last year, or garden, which worked great, but it would cost me the cost of a house to do it up back. But anyway, uh, my involvement in her garden is to call Lee Ames and ask him to come and rototill it. That's it. Right? That's it. I know, I'm not a very good husband. That's a whole other thing. But by the way, Lee, we're ready whenever you are, okay? I'm making a... I'm making a call right now. There, I just, honey, I just did it. I, I just caught, I told Lee. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so, but as I sit in the house while she's out in the garden, I have made some observations, right? I've made some observations about gardening. And I'd like to share with you five observations that I've had. In order for you to have a garden, these are five things that you've you got to think about, right? Number one, you have to acquire a spot to have a garden, right? I'm going to come back to this because that's what I want to talk to you about today. So let me just go to number two. Number two, you have to prepare the soil properly. If you're going to have a garden, you got to do something about making the soil uh, in such a way as to receive the seed. Number three, 
you have to plant or sow the proper seed. Right? Number four, you have to tend to the plants as they are growing. And number five, you have to harvest in, in due time the crops that you've grown. Five, five simple steps. Now, some of you I know are gardeners extraordinaire. Uh, and I realize that what I just said to you, those five steps, are a simplified version of what goes into gardening. And I know some of you go to much greater lengths and, and do other things, but for our purposes of what I want to talk to you about, I, these are the five basic steps I think you need to take in order to have a garden. Now, let me double back and, and take step number one. You have to acquire a spot to have a garden. <clears throat> I know in recent years, much has been written about eco-friendly or minimalist gardening where you don't need hardly any space or room to make a garden happen. And I certainly wouldn't want to say that that's wrong or I'm poo-pooing anything uh, that approach to things. But I want you to understand as I move forward and talk about this, I'm talking about having a plot of land to grow a garden. So the first step that you, that you need to do is you either need to buy, rent, or barter with somebody uh, to, uh, to procure a piece of land uh, in order to have your own place to garden, right? Somebody say yes, you gotta have, okay, you gotta have land, you gotta have it. When Jody and I first purchased our piece of property up on Stinson Road, we designated a spot that would be used uh, to locate a garden. That spot was used for, I can't remember that initial spot for a number of years, but it seemed to be wetter than it should be, right? This spot we picked out. So we, after we took a break for a while, we relocated the garden to another spot in our backyard, which it had been there for quite a few years before uh, recently, a couple years ago, we purchased the field that is next to our home and my, my wife had eyes on it, like, ooh, a whole field, right? A whole field, I get a whole field. And she said, I would like to see us relocate the garden over to this other area. Now, uh, I tell you all this because you, you must have uh, some land or some property or rent some or something in order to be able to have a spot to do the gardening. So, like for instance, like I would think it very unusual if one of the farmers in our area, just all of a sudden I looked out my window and he was out there with his tractor tilling up my, my field. I mean, unless we made some kind of agreement or something, he just can't come along and take a vacant spot and say, hey, I'm going to grow something here. You have to make arrangements in order to cause that to happen. I, uh, we happen to live now next to uh, Bob and Sue's daughter and son-in-law, and if I just went down to their yard and started turning over their soil, I got to believe they'd probably come out and say, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to have a garden here. Well, no, you can't have a garden here. This is our yard. And it's like, you got to first have a space, a spot to garden, right? Yeah. This makes sense. 
Uh, Jesus actually talked about this, about having a field available to him so he could do his work. It's actually found in a parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44. It's called the parable of the hidden treasures. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then his joy went and sold all that he had and bought the field. He bought the field. There are a couple of valid ways to interpret this parable, a couple of different ways of looking at what Jesus said. Regardless of which approach you take, the one common thread is that the kingdom represents the sphere or place of God's rule. The Bible, in different places, differentiates between the kingdoms of this world and God's kingdom. The kingdoms of this world are ruled by, or I probably should better say, uh, the, those who vie for power in the, in the kingdoms of this world are Satan and our own human fallen nature. Those are the two entities that are vying for power or control over the kingdoms of this world. The, the kingdom of God is ruled by one sole person, the owner of that kingdom, God himself. So Jesus starts right out saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. And when he says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he's talking about God's kingdom, the place where God has the authority to rule. Now, we happen to be living in the reality of both kingdoms being present simultaneously. We have the kingdoms of this world that vie for power and control, and that simultaneously with that, we have the kingdom of God that has come in, 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 in His strength and power, and there's this conflict that goes on between those kingdoms. You are seeing that played out every day in your newspaper. The kingdoms of this world and God's kingdom playing out, the contentiousness between those things. Now, looking at the two different ways of approaching this parable, understanding this parable, interpreting this parable, the one way of looking at it is from man's point of view. When you look at this parable from man's point of view, uh, we are the man referenced in the parable. We, human beings, are the man who found the treasure in this field, the field being the world, right? Found this treasure and went out and sold everything he had in order to purchase the field and obtain the treasure. In looking at it from man's point of view, it's us discovering, it's like we sang this morning, there's nothing better than you. 
There's nothing greater than your kingdom and your work in my life, and I will get rid of everything in order to be able to possess what you, the treasure of who you are. Do you understand that point of view? In this interpretation, we see Jesus encouraging us that there isn't anything we can give up that is more valuable than his kingdom. So that's one way of looking at it. But there is a second way that others have seen this, the interpretation or the view of this parable, and that's from God's point of view. Our point of view God's point of view. From God's point of view, the parable of the hidden treasure, the field is still the world. But the treasure in the field is you and I. We are the treasure. And the man referenced there is Jesus Christ. That he went and gave everything he had in order to purchase the field which contained the treasure of you and I so that we could be His treasure. I like that one. The other one's valid, but I really like that interpretation because what it tells me is, is that Jesus Christ paid, bought, purchased, us in such a way that we could be his garden, his field that he works in to bring about a beautiful, beautiful garden. I want to take you to just a few verses of Scripture that substantiate the fact that Jesus has paid the full price to buy this field. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes and he says, you are not your own. He's writing to Christians, people who have embraced Jesus Christ. He says to them, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. In Titus, Paul writes to Titus and says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do his will. Eager to do what is good. And then finally, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, uh, Paul is speaking to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And in Acts 20, 28, he says, Be shepherds of God's church, which Christ bought with his own blood. Without a doubt, Jesus has paid the price in order to have this, this uh, plot of land, if you will, that he could call his own, so that he could go about being the gardener that he is. The point I am making to us this morning is that we cannot enjoy the fruitfulness of being a productive garden unless first and foremost we give him ownership to the soil of our lives. 
You see, a lot of people, here's, here, here's how this thing works. A lot of people want, want the harvest, but without Him taking ownership. That's what they want. They want God, I want God to bless me, but He's not allowed to mess with the soil of your life. Those two things can't work. You can't have, you can't have the harvest in life unless you first give Him ownership of the garden of your life. You know, you, you can't say, well, I'm just going to I'm going to use the soil of my life however I want to, however I see fit. I'm going to do, with, uh, I'm going to do what I want and nobody's going to tell me anything different, right? I'm not going to make room. I'm not going to make space for him in my life to, uh, you know, to till around in there. Uh, I'm not going to let him be planting any stuff I don't want planted. In my listen, you until that takes place, you can't get to the fruitful part. I have a friend down in Pennsylvania. Now, sweetheart, there's nothing, nothing. Uh, you know, Jody is a great gardener. I'm just going to tell you that. But her, I, so, uh, anyways, my my friend in Pennsylvania, um, I stopped down to see him last summer, and and the minute I got out of my car, I'm looking at his garden. And it's so lush, and it's just beautiful. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's uh, tomatoes like this, and, and just, it, it was just busting with stuff. And I said, his name's Marty. I said, Marty, I said, you got to come up sometime and teach us how to do some gardening. I was just saying it for conversation purposes, you know what I mean? So one day he calls up and he says, hey, I'm going to come up. I want to talk gardening with you. I said to Jody, I said, hey, Marty's coming up. He wants to talk gardening with you. She says, I can't do it the day he's coming. I'm going to an Irish festival up in Tonawanda or someplace. <laughs> Marty still came. <laughs> and for six hours, we sat on the grass next to the, our garden, and I got a lesson about gardening. I had a notebook. I'm taking notes. Like, do this, do that, so on, whatnot. So, um, so some people, listen, some people, they want their garden to look like that, like Marty's garden. But there ain't nobody allowed to put a shovel in the soil of my life. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? We haven't given him ownership yet. We haven't given him the keys to the gate of our heart that allow him into the garden of our soul. I'm here inviting you this morning afresh, each of us afresh, 
to give God ownership, to give God permission to have access to the soil of your heart. There's some stuff that's going to have to take place in order for your garden to look the way you want it to. But if you don't settle that first issue, some of you may be here this morning who have never even thought about giving God the keys to your heart. Well, I'm telling you, you remember, remember, you aren't going to have a lush garden overnight. That's how some people want it, you know. Well, okay, I'll accept Jesus. Oh, Lord, come into my life. Now, and then tomorrow they want, they want blossoming fruit all over the place, right? That's not how this thing works. We, uh, God is the gardener. He's at work in our hearts and our souls, bringing about some blessing and some fruitfulness. Listen, I'll leave you with this this morning. Right after the resurrection, you may remember uh, Mary Magdalene came uh, to the place where Jesus was laid in the tomb, which, if you read your scripture, there was a garden there. There's something there about that. I don't know what it is. And as she's there, it tells us crying, it says a man spoke to her. Mary, why are you crying? This is what it says. Thinking he was the gardener. She says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, he just said her name, Mary, just Mary. And it says she turned toward him and cried out, Teacher. She realized it was Jesus. Now, when most people read this, they come away thinking Mary was confused because where the place of the tomb was, there was a garden there. And she thought this man that was speaking to her was possibly the caretaker of that garden. That's, that's reasonable. That's common sense, right? But most people think she was confused that Jesus wasn't Jesus. He was the gardener of this thing. And while I do think she was probably confused in that moment, I think in her confusion she was exactly right. He is the gardener. He's the one who came to tend to the soil of her heart in that moment. That's enough. Lord, you've always wanted a beautiful garden. You wanted one in the beginning. And we kind of screwed that up. So much so that you had to get, kick us out of the garden. It seems like you wanted Israel to fulfill that role for you. And we know that had its ups and downs. 
You came and brought salvation to us and the opportunity to carve out a people you could call your own again, Lord. And here we are these many years later. And I'm asking, Lord, and praying afresh this morning that each of us in here would would ask ourselves the question, am I God's garden? And maybe a follow-up question, does he have access to his garden? Lord, that each of us in those moments when we are quiet before you, when we are thinking about our life and where we're at and where we need to get to, Lord. That rather than finding ourselves confused about things or anxious about things, Lord, if we would simply ask ourselves the question, how's my garden doing? That we would see you through those lenses, Lord of you just trying to work in our lives in such a way as to bring about something beautiful, something fruitful, something meaningful, something where someday, somewhere along the way, some others could benefit from what you've done in our hearts and lives. That the fruit of our lips, Lord, would be evidence that you are at work in the soil of our lives. Lord, this morning we begin by asking ourselves the question, how does our garden grow? It grows by giving the one access who makes all things grow. Amen.